Thank you, guys. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and these guys will be glad to give you one. Just take your Bible and turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. <clears throat> we began a few weeks ago, and we'll be in it until Jesus comes back, knowing me. This series about truth. The more I do this, the longer I do it, uh, the more time I, I, I listen to people, and I'm just more convinced that there's a lot of confusion, even in people who go to church. Even in good churches sometimes, there's just a lot of confusion about what is truth. We saw Pilate ask that question, and what we're going to begin to look at today for a couple of weeks are the men, such as myself, and others who stand up, and women, who say, this is the truth. What do we do? What does the average person do? How do you examine it? How do you de de decide? I was reading a story this week about this poor kid. He was right out of seminary and he was at his first church and he was nervous and he was preaching his first sermon and he stood up and he had all these notes. He'd spent a lot of time. He was ready. He was prepared and the congregation, well, they were wrapped. He had their attention. Stands up and he starts talking and he's going on and on and in the back of the room, this guy says, we can't hear you. So he, he's taken aback, and so he tries to be a little louder, and he just keeps preaching, going, he said, I'm going to get through all my notes, I've got this great sermon prepared, and he keeps going and going, and the same guy in the back says, we can't hear you! So he's, oh, he tries harder and harder, and, and the guy one more time says, we can't hear you! And the fellow in the front row stands up, would you shut up so he can finish or come up here where you can hear him? And there's a little girl right over here, and the guy was preaching along and on and on and on, and she turned to her mommy and said, if we give him the money now, we'll shut up. And I think so many times... As Christians, we don't realize the value of the Word of God. And the more time that I spend in it, the more I realize how little time I spend in it and how precious that time is that I can be alone with the God of the universe who spoke it into existence, who is my heavenly Father, who's redeemed me and calls me his child. And he says, Randy, I got something for you. I don't need him to show up in a cloud in my room. I don't need a giant statue outside on the lawn. All I need to do is open the word of God and pay attention. I mentioned earlier that simple little thing like our daily bread devotional book. You'd be amazed at the, how God can use something as simple as you saying, all right, Lord, the next five minutes is yours. I'm going to read this little thing. I might even read the scripture that it tells you to read. And then I want you to speak to me, Lord, in, in prayer. You're not going to hear an audible voice. You do call me. But you'd be amazed if you're serious, Scripture teaches, if you're seeking truth, God will get it to you. Now, his primary way of getting it to you, you're holding in your hand. Now, whether it's a Bible, whether it's the King James Version or the New King James Version that the Apostle Paul used and that I happen to use, New International, New American Standard, if it's your smartphone, whatever tool you use, when you're reading from the Word of God, and again, it's so often, I think we miss it, even preachers miss it, is that it is literally the omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, immutable, holy, righteous God of the universe saying, hey, Randy, pay attention. I got some." And particularly what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes to, these, to the believers at Thessalonica whom he dearly loved. I want you to see the heart of the Apostle Paul for these people. And it was really convicting for me as, and as I study this again this week. Spent a lot of time over the last two weeks just in these 13 little verses that we're going to start. Notice the word start. To look at today how convicting it was to me that standing behind a podium or standing in front of a group of people, no matter how big or small, and saying to them, Thus saith the Lord is an awesome privilege. 
and a eye-opening responsibility. If you study scripture closely, God holds people like me who stand up in front of you and say, thus saith the Lord. He holds us to a higher standard when we step into eternity to make sure you have not lied. You have not twisted. You have not manipulated. You have not conned. You read Matthew chapter 23. Sometime this week, read Matthew 23. And notice what Jesus said to the Pharisees in that chapter. The most religious group of people that ever walked the planet. They believed they were righteous before God. They believed they were self-righteous. They kept the law. Just think about that for a moment. They believed it, and Jesus looked right at them several times in that chapter and said, Woe unto you. Woe unto you. Woe unto you. You're blind. You're children of Satan. You're going to hell, and you're taking people with you. Jesus is not happy with them. Now, what do you think he thinks about people today who have their own cable networks or maybe just in a church, whatever place, platform they may have, where they stand up with a banner behind them that says Jesus is Lord, and then they lie about Jesus, or they manipulate the people simply for personal gain or to get them to do what they want them to do, which is not according to the Word of God? How do you think Jesus thinks that, about that? What do you think he thinks about that? I'll tell you what he thinks. Woe unto them. I don't want to stand before Jesus one day and be one of those cats. I don't. Because clearly the Bible teaches there is a, a harsher degree of punishment in hell for people who are false teachers. Now, the other thing I want you to notice as we go through this is what Paul is trying to encourage them to understand and his heart. And I hope what comes out of this is my heart for you. Not only do I consider this an honor, not only do I consider it a privilege and a responsibility, but I love you and I want you to have a heart for truth, not to be religious. The Pharisees were seriously religious, but to have not only, you know, we throw the term out evangelicalism, we throw out personal relationship with God. Most people go, heck does that mean? It means that it's real to you. How many of you are married? How many of you really love your spouse? Why'd your hands go down? Wendy had to hold Bob's hand up. I'm worried about that. How many of you have children? How many of you love them? I'm not sure about it. How many of you have grandchildren? Woo! Dog! How many of you love being a grandparent? Come on up, let's talk about it. Remember those bumper stickers when you were a kid? You see people ask me about my grandchild. What is that old coot got that on his car for? I got mine tattooed. Man, I, I, my, my uh, oldest granddaughter has this thing. Uh, I guess it's an iPad. Is that what it is, baby girl? What? What? She has an iPod, and she texts me now. Eight years old, and she's FaceTiming, which is really cool. Eight years old, she's teaching me stuff. I texted her yesterday. I said, who loves Grandy? That's me, by the way. Who loves Grandy? She texts me back. I think her mama might have helped her. She texts me back a picture of herself and says, I do. Or me. Made my day. I know I had to beg for it, but that's all right. I don't mind begging. But I want you to have a passion for truth that's manifested. I love all four of my grandchildren with depths of my being. Having, having baptized Ella and looking forward to the day when I get to baptize the other three, hopefully. And I, all I want for them is that when Grandy is gone, that their memory of me is, Boy, he was funny, because as she gets, she's eight going on 12, and I ain't cool anymore, I've discovered. But that not only did Grandy love us, but she sure loved Jesus. Love Jesus. That's the memory I want anybody who knows me the way. That dude was crazy, and he loved Jesus. That's all they get out of it? That's okay. I want you to have such a passion for truth that it just it comes out of you. It just When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat blood because he loved and he knew what he was about to go. I want to sweat Jesus. What I want. I want to just come out. And I want that for you, not in an arrogant way, not in a, a I'm better than you way, but that I just want you, if somebody gave you $10 million, wouldn't you talk about it? Well, sure you would, because you'd be excited. And I want you just to have this, it just comes out, it's who you are. 
but it has to be about truth, because if it's not about truth, it becomes confusion. Look on your outline at the top of our series, What is Truth? Deuteronomy 32. I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. We're going to get to these verses in a few months, weeks, and analyze them further. But the idea I want you to take away is that there's nothing that your God, if you're born again and you know Jesus, you're a Christian, you're God, the creator of the universe. There's nothing about him that's unjust. There's nothing about him that's not perfect. It's not fair. The Bible says that all good and perfect gifts come from the Father of lights. He, he gives nothing but perfection and good things to the universe. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, but particularly you. And so when you're sharing Jesus with somebody who's not saved, you ought to be able to look them in the eye and say to them, my God loves you and you know it's true. You're not making it up because it's truth. My God wants you to have eternal life. You know that. The Bible says so. He's given to you. I want you to know about my God. Not a God that happens to be the one that I choose, but my God who is the rock. My God who is perfect. My God who is great. My God who will give to you peace, hope, reason for living, purpose for being here, and eternal life on top of that. Years ago, before I went into the ministry, I was in the greeting card business. I did not work for Hallmark, which was the big company. I worked for the next one down, the next largest company. We had like 30% of the overall market. Hallmark had 65, 70, they didn't have 70, whatever it was. They were huge, and we were about half their size. Well, our goal was what? Being in the business I was in, what was my goal? Take accounts away from Hallmark. That was part of my job in sales. And I was totally convinced and could prove to you I could take six of our cards, let you pick any cards you wanted from Hallmark, cut off the num name on the back, lay them in front of you, and you could not tell the difference in quality, all right? Once I proved that to you, that our quality was equal to theirs, then I laid out our terms of sale to you, which were free shipping. We'll take back anything you don't sell. Hallmark's was, take it, you're lucky to have it. Now, that I believe in what I was selling? I sure did. I sold it with all my heart because I believed it. And I was good at it. Not because I was a good salesman, because with all my heart, I knew it was truth. I could make money. Together, we could make money. And so I, for seven years, I did it. When it comes to Jesus Christ, are you totally convinced? We talked about that briefly last. Are you convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's God? Look there on your outline. Last week, we talked about, the last couple of weeks, Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. Today, we're going to talk about mere humans who preach the truth. How do you know? Here's where we got into the last couple of weeks as we walk through this. Truth exists. Remember the example? How many of you were here two weeks ago when we did the chair example? We don't want to do that again because we lost 58 chairs and they're coming out of my pay. But we proved that gravity exists, correct? Whether you believe it or not, is gravity true? Yeah, we proved it. You could prove that Jesus exists. You could prove that truth exists. The next question is, is Jesus the truth? He came to bear witness to the truth. We notice Pontius Pilate's response, which is the title of our series, is what is truth? He was ambivalent toward it, probably mocking, probably not believing. What is truth? It's the great question that man has been asking since the Garden of Eden. What did Satan ask Eve? The very first recorded conversation. What did he ask her? Has God truly said? And then he, he was manipulating, right? You don't think that goes on today? Satan even uses guys standing behind pulpits to manipulate truth, keep people as religious as they can be, but not excited, personally loving Jesus Christ. Our society has rejected absolute truth, which is where we get to the title of today's me message. Truth is not relative. Gravity is not what you want it to be, correct? How many of you would like to fly? None of you. All right. 
Don't you think it'd be cool to go up on top of this building, take off? Just soar, kind of. Woo, look at down there. That'd be cool. You know you'd like it, whether you admit it or not, you'd like it. See, gravity's not relative. You don't get to decide whether jumping off the building, you'd hit the ground. If you jump off the building, what's going to happen to you? You're going to hit the ground. Why? Because truth exists and gravity is true. It's a law. We'll talk again more about the law of creation, conscience, some other thing in a couple of weeks. But the, the point is, truth exists. Pilate was ambivalent toward it. Our society has adopted this mindset that we live in today. Truth is simply relative. Whatever Dick Hunter wants truth to be versus what you want it to be, it's okay. Let me read you a quote from Alan Bloom's book called The Closing of the American Mind. I want you to listen closely to this. It's a little long, but listen to it. Quote, there's one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. If this belief is put to the test, one can count on the student's reaction. Students, plural. They will be uncomprehending. That anyone should regard relativism as not self-evident astonishes them, as though he were calling into question 2 plus 2 equals 4. These are things you don't think about. The students' backgrounds are as various as America can provide. Some are religious, some atheists, some are to the left, some to the right. Some intend to be scientists, some humanists, some professionals, some businessmen, some are poor, some are rich. They are unified. Now listen to this. They are unified only in their relativism and in their allegiance to equality, and the two are related in a moral intention. The relativity of truth is not a theoretical insight, but a moral postulate, the condition of a free society as they see it, end quote. That's the next generation's country. They consider moral relativism not an opinion, but a moral dynamic. That's what equality means. It's a huge difference between having the right to think what you want to think and it being true. We talked about this before. I can sincerely believe I'm a car, but I'm not. I'm a human being. I shared the example with you about my mother-in-law. He called again last night. She's 94. Wanted to talk to her mother, who's been dead since 1965. Now, in her mind, was her mother alive? Absolutely, because she hung up on Mary when he told her she wasn't. This is her baby girl. <laughs> she sincerely believed she was going to talk to Nanny. Nanny's been dead since 65. Mary told her that. Now, Mary told her what? But in Memo's mind, it wasn't truth. You see, here was where we are. If, uh, if we as believers postulate that we believe in absolute truth, what's the response society now places on us? You're arrogant. You're immoral. And who the heck do you think you are? Look at what the Mr. Kathy went through with Chick-fil-A, and all he did was answer a question in her interview. What's your opinion about traditional marriage? That's all he did. Let's say, I believe in traditional marriage. One man, one woman. That was his opinion. He gave it. Yeah, that's what we believe at Chick-fil-A. And there are entire cities in our nation that are saying, you can't have Chick-fil-A in our city now. They're going to keep him from doing business because he has an opinion that they disagree with. That's the society that we're living in. And all these kids are entering university, and they're being bombarded with the fact there is no such thing as absolute truth. Daniel Webster, whose dictionary many of you have read, said, quote, If we abide as a nation by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering and to prosper. But if we see our posterity neglected and its instructions and authority, if we or our posterity neglected and its instructions, the Bible and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity. Very prophetic, was he not? And don't raise your hand if you've ever said this about one of your children, but I've talked to people who said the following words to me. They were talking about the children of 18 to 30 age. And they said, well, at least he's going to church somewhere. That's one of the most dangerous minds I ever have. 
Because there are churches you can go to teach a moral relative truth. So you get a false security. My attitude should be, I want my child to see. Why do I want them to seek truth? Because Christ is, and if you seek him honestly, I, I have no problem with people differing, and I, I want people differ. I want them to tell me if, don't tell me what I want to hear, but then be honest and objective and seek truth, because Romans makes it clear, if you seek truth, you will find it. Different ways, God may manifest it. You will find it, you seek it, if you're honest. Because what's happening to these kids, this next generation, is they're no longer seeking truth. Ravi Zacharias' new book, you haven't gotten it, you get it and read it. It's boring, but it's prophetic about we've adopted a media mindset. We no longer analyze, we see, and believe. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to begin to walk through this today. I want to quickly give you the context of 1 Thessalonians 2. We're going to look at a little bit of it and then pick it up next week. What you will notice, 1 Thessalonians 2, I want to read the first two verses and then we'll come back to the context. 1 Thessalonians 2. You yourselves know, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. What you will notice, and that's kind of setting the stage, Paul writes these words at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He is being very defensive. It's the only time you'll really see them anywhere in his writing. He's writing to defend himself because he's being attacked. That he came to Thessalonica and then he ran off and his enemies were coming on saying, where is he? What do you think he's doing? Because what went on in those days? Have you ever been to, a, been to the, the old Mid-South Fair or you've been to a carnival when you go through the Midway and you see these guys with no teeth and what are they screaming? Hey, come here. Yo, 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 you. Don't you want that pretty girl to win something? Come here. I got something for you. I used to do that. So he said, bring your little boy over here. Let's show him what kind of man you are. Surely you can knock those bottles down. You can't throw a ring over that man. What kind of man are you? Man, when I was in high school, I spent every cent I had trying to win something, and I, I didn't win anything. That's the, what went on at this time, constantly. I want to read you a quote from a historian. Quote, there's probably never been such a variety of religious cults and philosophic systems as in Paul's day. Holy men of all creeds and countries, popular philosophers, magicians, astrologers, crackpots, and cranks. The sincere, the spurious, the righteous, and the rogue. They all jostled and clamored for the attention of the credulous and the skeptical. End quote. That constantly people were coming along and saying, this is the truth, this is the way, this is the way. And Paul comes along, says the same thing about Jesus, and he has to move on. I'll tell you why in a moment. And so the critics are coming along saying, Paul's just like everybody else. Sound a lot like America today. How do you know where the end? For example, I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. Doesn't matter to me. What matters is voting your conscience, voting truth. And if you listen, if you watch TV and listen, you can't figure out what the truth is. This guy says, takes the exact same numbers, says two different things, welfare, Medicare, all. You don't know what the truth is unless you analyze it for yourself, right? That's what's going on here. Paul comes along and says, Jesus is the truth. Some other knucklehead comes along and says, Gnosticism is the truth. A Ju Judaizer will come along and say, Judaizing is the truth. How do you know the difference? Because you have to have a passion for truth. When you get a chance this week, you can read Acts chapter 16, and you'll see what I'm about to tell you. This is what was going on. Paul went to Philippi. Paul had gone to Philippi, and he lead, there's a girl there that's possessed by a demon. He leads her to Jesus. She gets saved. In the process of getting saved, where did the demon go? He left. So he cast the demon out. The girl is born again. She was a slave. Her owners, the owners of the slave girl, go to the city leaders at Philippi because Paul has taken away their way of making a living because she's saved and she's following now. She's no longer a slave. She's following Paul. And they can't make money with him because she's not demon-possessed anymore. So they go to the city leaders. They're irate. 
They beat Paul and Silas. They put them in stocks. They humiliate them naked in the stocks, in prison. He's set free, and he has to flee. He goes to Thessalonica. That's verses 1 and 2 that we just read. He boldly preaches the gospel there at Thessalonica. You can read Acts 16 into 17 and see this. They follow him there. They're so upset to persecute him at Thessalonica. So he has to flee Thessalonica under cover of darkness. So then what do his enemies come along and say? Look, he ran off. He goes to Berea. Guess what they do from Thessalonica? They follow him to Berea and continue to persecute him. Any wonder he wrote to Timothy, if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Read the book of Acts close. Read it. See what he went through. So he writes back now to the church at Thessalonica. He says, I want you to examine the men who speak the word to you. This is what, again, my heart, I want you to take away from this and God's challenge to you. You need to examine the men who speak the word to you. He talked about the Bereans being noble because they examined what Paul said. I expect you, when you hear me speak, you ought to go to the Bible, study it for yourself, make sure Randy told you the truth. Examine the men who speak the word. That's the first point on your handout. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. The first thing you need to examine about these men is their character. These other guys were coming along and telling, some, saying something about the truth. Paul was defending himself. He said, check it out. Check them out. Check me out. And the first thing you need to do is examine their character. Paul is defending his integrity. And I'm telling you from personal experience, I had to share this recently in a meeting that I was in. When someone attacks my integrity, it's the, it's the worst possible. It gets more upset than anything you could ever do. Because if I don't have integrity, I have nothing. I cannot stand before you. I can't stand before my family. I can't say anything about I am a Christian or thus saith the Lord if I'm not a man of integrity. And mine was recently attacked. It really upset me. That's what Paul is doing here. He's defending his integrity, saying, check me out against them. Examine their character. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Our coming to you was not in vain. And the reason he's doing this, this is so important. The word vain means we didn't come to you empty. That's what the word means. Our coming to you was, wasn't a waste of time and it wasn't empty. And here's what you're going to see as we walk through this, and this is part of my passion for you. You know why he's defending his integrity? It's not about him. It's so important. The reason he's defending his integrity is if they're successful in tearing down his integrity, will the people at Thessalonica believe what he taught? There is no. So he's defending his integrity so that he can encourage the Christians at Thessalonica that what he taught them was the truth. So, for example, if I stand up here and say to you that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by him, someone comes along and proves to you that Randy is a liar and a false teacher, then you're going to say, well, maybe Jesus isn't the way, the truth, and the life. And maybe there is another way to God like all these other people are teaching. For example, if you haven't read Rob Bell's book or heard about Rob Bell's book over the last couple of years where he's teaching universalism, he says in his book he believes Gandhi will go to heaven. Gandhi, in his own words, denied the deity of Jesus Christ. He said, I've examined it and there's no way that he can be divine. If he's not divine, what is Jesus? He's a liar. We saw that when he stood before Pilate, right? He's a liar. He's not divine. Why is this important? 
That's why Paul is defending integrity, because if you could tear down the integrity of the person speaking, then what speak is invalid if they are a liar. So he's defending his integrity. He said, we didn't come to you in vain, verse 2, but after all we'd gone through at Philippi, we were bold. Please don't miss that, we being Paul and Silas. He's saying, after all we went through at Philippi, being lied about, being beaten, being placed in the stocks, being placed in prison, after all we went through, when we were set free, what did they do? Look at verse 2. After we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, in other words, I'm not telling you something you don't know. As you know, we were what? What's the next word? Bold. We were bold to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Despite all we went through, we were bold to tell you the truth because that's really all that matters. I want you to notice the little phrase there in verse 2, in much conflict. He's referring back to Philippi. The term in Greek means, and they really understood this, it means an athletic contest where there's tremendous opposition against you. He's saying that's what we went through at Philippi, and despite that, we're coming to you at Thessalonica. We came to you at Thessalonica, and we preached the truth. We got through the athletic contest, the tremendous opposition at Philippi, and we came to you to do what? Speak the truth. Look at verse 3. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. Now, please hang with me, because what he's trying to do is get them to check. He's saying, check me out, Silas out, against these other guys, because they brought you error, they brought you uncleanness, but check us out versus them. And I really want you to notice this because it's extremely important. Our exhortation. Look up here for just a moment. That particular word, that word in Greek means I appeal to your intellect to make a decision. This is so vital for you as a believer to understand. Because the, our culture with its moral relativism mindset thinks Christians are what? Ignorant, arrogant, even immoral to believe what we believe. Paul is saying, I want you to examine it. I want you to study it. I want you to make an intellectual decision. Is this the truth? You see that? So important. We're not dumbos who just said, oh, oh no, man, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll follow Jesus because that's what I was told to do. When you examine, and we're going to talk more about this over the weeks to come, when you examine the evidence with an honest, open mind, you can only come to one conclusion about Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead and he is God. That's it. Not a charlatan, not a liar, not a kook. He is God, an intellectual. Now, you may choose morally to reject him. You have the right to do that. But you can't intellectually examine it and honestly say that it's not the truth. If you're honest, if you're objective, you walk away saying he's the truth. I don't have to follow him. You get an option. Judas knew who Jesus was, didn't he? Did he choose to follow him? No. The Bible says in John 66, everyone, somewhere in that, in that chapter, Jesus challenged them, and the Bible says many walked away. You could reject him morally. You cannot reject him intellectually. You just can't. Same thing with the Bible. You could prove that the Bible is true. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to follow it. You can't deny that it's truth. We're going to talk about that. Why? Because that's what we believe. My question is, do we really believe it? So he says, I want, you to, I want my exhortation, verse 3, my exhortation to you. I want you to make an intellectual decision. Examine what I had to say and Silas had to say against what these other clowns had to say. Check it out. Notice the other thing he says. We did not come, verse 3, from error or uncleanness. What that means in Greek is we were not, and I love this because it happens today. It's incredible how relevant it is. What that means in Greek is we were not peddling religion or our opinion. We didn't come along trying to sell you something. We didn't come along saying, look, I got a bottle of Mary's tears here. If you'll send me $1,000, I'll send you a bottle of Mary's tears. Or I'll pray over this cloth and I'll send it. 
We came along to tell you the truth, the gospel of God, not error, not uncleanness. But look at the next thing he says, verse 3. Nor was it in deceit. You know what the word deceit means in Greek? I love this picture. It means baiting a hook. I love that. Because when that hook hits the water and it's got a cricket on it and that brim is swimming along, what does he think? Woo, lunch. And the next thing he knows, he's laying on the bank. That's what Paul is saying. We're not baiting a hook. We're not, we're not out here lying to you. What we're offering you is the truth. Examine it. Check it out. We're not selling you something. You'll see more about that later. And we're not, we're not giving you bait to try to reel you in. We're sharing the truth that will change your life. Check it out. Make an intellectual decision. Then verse 4. Notice the first word of verse 4. What is it? But. A favorite word in the Bible. He said, here's the difference. We're not selling. We're not baiting hooks. But. As we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Approved by God. In Greek, that means you've been checked out. To use a term we would use in our society today is you've been vetted and you've been found worthy to run for public office. Problem with that today, if you're vetting people for public office, I'm not sure you find too many. That's what it means in Greek. It's you've been vetted and you've been found worthy. In other words, God has chosen us to be there for you. Notice how he puts it. We've been entrusted with the gospel. Now I'll bring this back to people like me again, passing others. Because that's why Paul is defending his integrity. He's saying God have checked us out, God vetted us, God approved us, God sent us, and entrusted us sacred, this is called the sacred platform, to share with you. It's an honor, sacred honor. But boy, you better tell the truth. Don't lie. Don't manipulate. Don't bait a hook. Don't sell something. Truth. Share the truth. He's saying it's a sacred honor for us, and that's why we're here. Not like these other guys. Check it out. Compare us. Check out their character. Notice the next thing he says. We've been approved by God, not as pleasing men. Man, that's so important. We all struggle with that. Not men pleasers. That's the way he puts it, the end of verse 4. Not as pleasing men, but whom? God, who tests the hearts. Well, I have to be reminded about this, and uh, some of our elders, we talk about this on a regular basis, on a personal level. Because the job of an elder, and we have two of them here in our room today, the job of our elders is to please you, right? No, no. Who is it? What's their job? Please God. And I'm telling you, hard, solemn responsibility. God says to me, you stand up there and tell them the truth. You tell them what I tell you say. If they don't like it, they can take it up with me. Does that mean I don't love you? No, of course. With, with your children. Do you love your children? Do you love your grandchildren? Don't make me scream again. Of course you do. Do you always tell them what they want to hear? You do, you don't love them. Do you sometimes say no? Most of the time. Do you try to say you're not getting that and here's why? I love you, but no. That's, all, that's what God is doing. That's why the word of God is so important. They're not pleasing men. Paul says, we're not here to please you. We were sent by God and trusted by God. He knows our hearts. So you need to check us out. Check out what we say. Check out our character, our integrity, not men pleaser. Verse 5, we're going to stop here. Neither at any time do we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. I love verse 5 flattering words. We didn't tell you what you wanted to hear. So many times that's what preachers do. They just tell you what you want to hear. Why is it that the word faith preachers and the prosperity preachers, why is it that they have such huge followings? You know why? It's because they tell people what they want to hear. You'll never be sick and you'll always have money. Who doesn't want that? Write me down for that. I can have all the money I want. I'm never going to be sick. Of course you want that. And they're standing up there saying, God guarantees you in the atonement you'll never be sick. That is a lie. But yet they've built an entire ministry on that. 
lying about what the Word of God says. You don't think they get sick? How many of them live to be 120? The, lo the logical extension of, of their theology is to live forever. Yeah, you're going to live forever in heaven or hell. But you ain't going to live forever on this planet. How do I know? Because I don't feel good. Neither do you. You will die one day. You're going to be sick. You're going to have problems. You're going to struggle because that's the human condition. It's called sin. So they come along and lie to you. We, we will not do that. We will tell you the truth. We will not use it as a cloak. And that means pretext for covetousness. Here's the picture. We will never come to you, Paul is saying, we will never come to you and tell you something so that we might personally gain from that. You don't think there are preachers doing that today? There have been some that have been caught. Robert Tilton, for example, was exposed by A.B. Gosh, 15 years ago now, Scott and I met the guy that exposed this kind of a cat in St. Louis. He literally was a con artist. And he's back on the air. Doing, Mary and I saw him uh, last year with Florida. We'd be back doing the exact same. Stealing. For, I, uh, Scott and I personally saw it at the Coliseum when it was still standing or still being used years ago. We saw a guy doing it right there. Saw it happening. I'm sorry, Scott wasn't with that. Time. We saw that. There was another guy we saw at the pyramid of that. I was by myself at the Coliseum. Saw it happening. Give, us, give God. He was literally, this guy stood up here and said, and he was from Memphis, a preacher here in this town, stood up and said, don't worry about the doctrine of the Bible. It's all about feeling now and experience. You don't need the doctrine of the Bible. And then the guy gets up that was there and said, if you give, God just told me, if you give, clean out your bank account tonight, you'll not be in debt in six months. The lady next to me was writing a check for she had. She can't wait not to have a mortgage. And six months later, what do you think? She had bills she couldn't pay. Lying as a pretext for personal gain. Paul said, we will never do that. Check out their character. And the last thing, verse 6, nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. We're going to stop with this one today because we're going to take communion together. But here's what I want you to notice. Verse 6, he says, we were humble. He said, we are the apostles of Jesus Christ. He personally appeared to us and commissioned us to do this. And as the apostles of Christ, we could make demands on you, but we won't. We're simply here to share the truth, to love you. Check us out. Check them out and then make an honest intellectual decision. So here's my challenge to you as we close today. In a moment, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. Are you honestly examining the Word of God? Do you believe that the Bible is true? And do you live your life based on that? If you don't, why not? Would you bow your heads, please? Lord, we thank you for truth. We thank you for the fact it does exist. We thank you for the fact Jesus is the truth. So Lord, I pray we've been challenged today to examine the men who claim to speak truth. Check them out. Specifically today, their character. Who are they? What do they stand for? What are they, why are they doing what they do? What is their motivation? But Lord, for us, I pray we would pause. And even as we get ready to share the Lord's Supper together, we would examine our hearts. Am I a seeker of truth? If you're born again, not only are you saved, God says you are being saved. Live for me. Am I seeking truth? I pray that for each. Honestly object, examining what we hear. And then go out and share that truth, our world. So, Lord, as we begin, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, I pray we're serious about our faith. We pray in Jesus.